0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We are continuing our sermon series on the book of John. And today we'll be in John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, uh, there's a lot about death. Death haunts us all, whether by old age, illness, violence accident or natural disaster, death consistently intrudes upon our lives. It has led philosophers and thinkers to wrestle with it in their own ways. Often, I think the way that we do this is just to try to make it a part of life. And maybe one of the most brilliant philosophical statements of our modern time is that phrase, YOLO. You only live once. It's the acknowledgement that death is, in fact, coming. And so, Make the most of this moment." I would say that most of us probably follow that sentiment, at least in practice. We utilize death as a way to make the most of the present. We all know that it is coming. We don't know exactly when, but we want to make the most of the now. Now other world religions. Whether they believe in reincarnation, or being absorbed into the divine, or some sort of afterlife where our spirits live on without our bodies, all function essentially for us to make the most of the present. Because once this life ends, we cease to be us in any meaningful sense. Unless we are resurrected in our bodies, in these bodies, we become something else, we become someone else, we're no longer us. Humans have dealt with death ever since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Even the ancient Greeks had to deal with their own mortality. You guys remember the story of Hercules being a demigod, kind of born from half-god and also um, Zeus and then uh, a mortal woman, he was mortal. In order to earn his immortality, he had to do 12 seemingly impossible feats to prove that he was a God, to prove that he deserved it. How does Christianity deal with death and mortality? Do we accept it as just part of the way that it is? Do Christians accept YOLO, make the most of this time? Or like Hercules, are Christians saying that there are certain tests that you have to pass in order to earn eternal life? Today, we're going to learn from one family of three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, how Christians deal with death. And we'll see that there are three major areas, three major arenas that we're going to have to deal with death in, our heads, our hearts, and our hands. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to forewarn you, it's a long one. Don't lock your knees. And if you do need to sit down, please, please do. John chapter 11, in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it." Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, "'Let us go to Judea again.' The disciples said to him, "'Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again?' Jesus answered, "'Are there not twelve hours in the day?' And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him." So Thomas, called the Twin, said to his fellow disciples, "'Let us also go, that we may die with him.'" Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. But you no longer have to stand, so please be seated. So we're exploring today how Christians deal with death, and we're gonna see through Martha, Mary, and Lazarus that Christians deal with death in their head, their hearts, and their hands. So first, our heads. You know how some things are way better than you expected. I grew up in Kansas City, and I did not see the ocean until I was 18 years old. Now, I had a correct head knowledge of what the ocean was like. I knew that it was salty. I knew that the waves were powerful. But it didn't actually prepare me for experiencing the ocean for the first time. That kind of knowledge is a different kind of knowledge. Knowing about a resurrection is very different than knowing it experientially. See, Martha, in verses 21 through 27, gives some amazing head knowledge answers. She starts dealing with death in her head, in her mind. Hearing that Jesus is approaching the city, she goes out to meet him, and she starts, in some sense, expressing her sorrow. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But she immediately follows that up with some good and correct head knowledge. She says that whatever Jesus asks of the Father will be granted to him. She'll say even later that she knows that there will be a resurrection from the dead on the last day. She confesses that he is the Christ, the Messiah, coming into the world. This is a good and right knowledge. Jesus even gives her more of the knowledge. He admits that he is the resurrection of the life and that whoever believes in him, though he die, shall live. Now, although Martha could express some of this theological aptitude, this correct head knowledge, we know that it changes a little bit later. By the time we get to verse 39, it shows that it hasn't quite sunk in her theology hadn't actually changed how she lived in the world. Because although she could affirm that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, the Christ, the Messiah coming into the world, when Jesus says, take away the stone in front of the tomb, another very real head knowledge comes bursting in and overwhelms. Uh, Lord, it's going to stink. One commentator could describe Martha like this. Martha knew that Jesus was a good mediator. Martha knew that Jesus could speak to God and God would listen. But she hadn't quite made the connection that Jesus was God Himself, that Jesus had the authority to say with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and that the dead would obey. Mary was going to need more than simply head knowledge. She was going to need a resurrection power to indwell her, to help her connect the dots. She, of course, was going to witness Jesus performing that which we read in the passage where he raised Lazarus from the dead, but she needed the resurrection power to continue making her theological head knowledge effective to her person. When Jesus says in verse 25 that he is the resurrection and the life, he was informing Mary—I'm sorry, Martha, not Mary—Martha, that she would need more than just correct answers. She would need to see Jesus himself for who he says he is. What we learn from Martha is how to deal with death with our heads, and we can learn three things from this passage. First, we can conclude that studying doctrine is actually very important. In dealing with death, it's important to know that the Bible never says that we're going to become angels. Sometimes we, like, have that idea that we're all going to become angels. It's important to know that the Bible doesn't say that we're going to be in heaven forever, but that we're actually going to come back here in our bodies. It's important for Christians dealing with death to know the truth about what God says about death and resurrection. But the second thing we learn is that theological head knowledge by itself is insufficient. There have been plenty of careful theologians who knew their Bibles very well, but who couldn't see Jesus and wouldn't believe him even if he performed those signs. In fact, we see some even in our passage. Some Jews would believe, but some, in verse 37, could respond, couldn't the one who opened the eyes of the blind also prevent this one from dying? Or in verse 46, some believed, but some went to tell the Pharisees. Or even the leaders of the Jewish people, the most theologically astute, the council of leaders in verse 53, can make plans to put him to death. Theological head knowledge by itself is insufficient. You have to actually know the resurrection power in Jesus Christ. One last thing that we can deduce from watching Martha and dealing with death in our heads is that sometimes we try to run away from our emotions by hiding behind doctrine. We're going to look at this more in our next point, but just know that when Christians jump too quickly to our theological answers. Without acknowledging real pain and real hurt, we run the risk of our theology becoming trite. When we skip over the emotional realities of what's going on inside of ourselves and others in the face of death and start pounding doctrinal truths in to cover our own insecurities, we're in danger of making our theology common, cliche, Platitudinal stock. Dealing with death as Christian means actually knowing what the Bible says about death. And we follow Martha and how well she could study it and proclaim that doctrine. But we're also going to follow Martha and how she has to depend upon the resurrection and life himself. So first we see that Christians deal with death in our heads. Next, we deal with it in our hearts or in our emotions. One of my brothers Around like his seventh grade year or so received an Xbox game that he wanted, Call of duty, modern warfare. and he was so overcome with emotion that he literally broke down in tears having opened it like you know you can imagine it tearing open the, the present right and he's like excited, and then this like seventh grader just breaks down, overwhelmed by emotion now joaquin, my two year old son can often be overcome by his emotion. And as adults, we begin to learn a little bit, a little bit, of emotional regulation. Uh, And so I don't, I rarely see adults that uh, feel comfortable showing excitement at that level. You know, like by opening a present and just like showing their excitement by jumping up and down and screaming and crying occasionally, but not very often. What's far more frequent is adults being overwhelmed by the emotion of grief. The loss of a loved one surprises us in a way that we would have never expected. It overwhelms us. And although we may have learned a little bit of emotional regulation, we still deal with death in our hearts. Now, Martha approached Jesus. And even in her sadness, she started with doctrine. You might say that her default position was to start in her head. But Mary, Mary approached with the default position of her heart, her emotions, the loss of her brother, the sadness that Jesus had not come sooner, the sudden and crushing empty space in their home without her brother there. It overwhelms her. It overwhelmed her even until the fourth day of mourning. And as she runs to Jesus and falls down at his feet, her emotionally charged question almost seems as if it's charging Jesus with an injustice. If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. How is Jesus going to respond to this display of emotion? We often tend to believe that Jesus was a stoic, that showing emotions is bad, that it's just full of sinfulness. Now maybe uh, with millennials like myself leading churches, that's beginning to change because we like to feel our emotions a lot, or so I'm told, from older people. But on the scale of willing to show emotion to not, uh, I'm still a Presbyterian, so I think that's off the charts. Like, we don't even make it. We just can't show emotion. I think we all have something to learn in how Jesus responds to Mary, because he looks at this woman weeping at his feet. He looks at the others also weeping, and he himself wept. Jesus wept so much so that the Jews were astonished at how much he loved Lazarus. You see, Jesus affirms that grief has a time in a place. Jesus himself grieves for the loss of his friend. But Jesus is not so caught up in his grief that he slips into despair. We might say that Jesus identifies with, experiences, and even shows Mary the fullness of what grief can look like. And we can learn two things. First, that grief grief is appropriate. Jesus wept. Second, that despair should be fought against because the power of the resurrection life has come. So first, let's look at this a little more. Um, Not only grief, but an entire range of emotional responses are open to us as human beings. Uh, Our passage today kind of focuses on grief, so I'm going to use my examples there. Um, But Jesus is not ashamed of our human emotions. We're often aware that we're quick to sin as we express emotion, maybe especially anger, but I would argue that we are often just as quick to sin by showing none. The repression of emotion might be just as full of our own pride and our own protection of self-image than our expression of emotion. We are desperately dependent upon Jesus to save us, But Jesus never said that he was going to make us unhuman, but fully human. There is a right and proper grief at death, sin, and brokenness in this world. The second thing, though, we can learn from Mary is that we fight against those extremes of our emotions that blind us to Jesus himself. When in grief, despair is the temptation. Despair that there is no hope, that the finality has come and all is lost. Jesus fights this despair by showing Mary that he is the resurrection of the life, by calling Lazarus out of the tomb. We need a resurrection power a power from Jesus himself to fight against those tendencies of expression of emotion that lead us to blind us to Jesus himself. Jesus says that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will drive us again and again and again to see Jesus himself, to not be lost in our emotions but to find rest in the resurrection and the life. So we've seen how we wrestle against death with our heads, and also we wrestle against death with our hearts. Lastly, we're gonna see what it means to wrestle against death with our hands. So for our first example, we had Martha, and our second, we had Mary. For this example, we're gonna have Lazarus. Now, if you were paying attention, you might be thinking, Lazarus doesn't do a lot in this passage. He doesn't even say anything. that's kind of my point. Having died, covered in stench, called out of the tomb, not only did Lazarus simply obey the voice of his God, 43 and 44, by obeying the voice of his God that said, come out of the tomb when he was dead, but he would continue to be a testimony to God's resurrection power. Now, I had you stand for 53 verses, and I really wanted it to go a little bit more But if you were to keep reading into chapter 12, this is why I didn't do this. You guys can already see where this is going. So it's like we're in chapter 11, going all the way to chapter 12. Chapter 12, 9 through 11, you would read this. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him being Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus' job, having experienced the resurrection power of Jesus, was to bear witness about that by existing. When we have experienced the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, our job is to bear witness by existing by living our lives in light of that reality. You can think of it this way, and I've used a, a similar example before. You know, the river of life used to only flow one way, right? From life to death. From life to death. Ever since Adam and Eve. But Jesus reversed that river. He brings dead things back to life. But in some sense, Jesus has Damned up the power of that river with himself until he comes again in its fullness, and the resurrection is on full display when everyone is risen from the dead, that resurrection in the last day that Martha was talking about. But Jesus said that when he sent his Holy Spirit, that we would experience little tastes of this resurrection, little pieces of that river would burst forth here and now. What does this look like in our lives? It looks like when we put to death the fruits of death, when we stop doing those things that mark a life lived in the valley of the shadow of death. But now we're in the valley of the shadow of a dammed up river full of life. We die to those things that once enslaved us by His power. We work differently. We love differently. We give differently. I hope you understand what I'm saying. A lot of times we believe as Christians that we're going to escape this world, that Jesus is coming to destroy, and we will just live with Him in heaven forever. But that's not what the Bible says the Bible says that he's going to resurrect our bodies and that we're coming back here. There will be a judgment, yes, but that here is where he will reign. His, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe one way to take, one kind of takeaway from this application, and someone a lot smarter than me pointed this out, but one of the biggest things that Christians can show our world about a resurrection power is what true and real forgiveness looks like. Our culture is increasingly unable to forgive. Every disagreement is equated with hatred. Communities are formed around shared ideals, not around proximity. Our culture is more or less okay with slander, posturing, manipulation. We're okay with canceling, controlling the narrative. In a time where every disagreement equals a burned bridge, we curate our social media feeds to tell us what we want to hear. We're in a culture that is increasingly unable to forgive. If this is the only life there is, then justice has got to be paid now. The only way for Christians to forgive, truly forgive, is because they live in light of that resurrection power. They know that when the resurrection comes in its fullness, they know that resurrection power that indwells them, convinces them of the fact that every relationship will be secure. Every wrong will be righted. Every tear will be wiped away. And so, living in light of that in this world, they genuinely give repentance. Forgiveness. They generally, they also repent. They generally give forgiveness. Christians fight against death with their heads, their hearts, and their hands. But is this just earning our immortality, though? Is this three things, three seemingly impossible feats? that we, like Hercules, have to face in order to taste this resurrection power, Jesus doesn't just show us how to deal with death. He deals with death himself. You see, Caiaphas believed that Jesus would die so that the whole nation of Israel could have life. He honestly believed that the death of Jesus would protect them from the Romans. If you look in verse 48, and it would give them a place and a nation And so these guys said, you know what, he's going to have to die to protect this nation because or else the Romans are going to come and take it away from us. Their vision of rescue was far too small. They wanted rescue from just the Romans. And so when Jesus was about rescuing them from death and gave Lazarus life, that would be the last straw for them. It'd be the last straw for Caiaphas, it'd be the last straw for the Sadducees, and it'd be the last straw for the Pharisees. Now, in the Disney version of Hercules, he also had to earn his divine status, his his immortal status. But he did so through seemingly self-sacrifice. But if you're paying close attention to the Disney Hercules movie, and maybe it's been a while since you've seen it, it's hard to say that that would be a selfless self-sacrifice. He's dying for his love interest, which is powerfully emotive. But Jesus dies for those who were spitting on him, those who would abandon him. And as Scripture would say, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus dealt with death ultimately so that we might deal with death temporally. Jesus dealt with death in its fullness so we might only experience it in part. Jesus dealt with death so that a river might flow the other way. He dealt with death because he is the resurrection, and he is the life. Christians deal with death not so that we can earn everlasting life, We deal with death because we have been united to the living one, who is not in the grave, who is still alive, who sees you in your grief and approaches you, who weeps with you and says, this too I will rescue. He calls us to live in the power of his resurrection here and now. He calls us to wrestle with death in our head, hearts, and hands while resting in his defeat of death. He looks at you and me and invites you to believe like the disciples, to know, to experience, and to rest in the resurrection and the life himself. Would you pray with me? Father, we can try to explain away death, but it still surprises. We can try to ignore our emotions, but we are often still so overcome. Father, we can try to live our lives as if death isn't there. We need a stronger power. Allow us to know, experience, and rest, and live in light of the resurrected and living one in whose name we pray amen